Walcott's poetry is so focused on history and heritage. And what better history and heritage for a poet than Homer and Shakespeare? These forms are our heritage as poets. He, so he's grafting his branch onto this pre-existent tree. How foolish would it be in a moment of hubris and pride to say to that tree, I don't need you. I don't need your roots. You cut yourself off from those roots. You, your little branch will wither. I think one of the beauties of his poetry, poetry in general, is that poetry can bring together disparate things and synthesize them into something that feels seamless. Like in these short lines, he's taken the Bible the Southern yeah. history, the small little town um, in the early morning, and Virgil, and he's tied them together. What a great way to breathe new life into something, is to show the epicness of it, uh, the biblical proportions. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Josh and Heather about more and later poems by Derek Walcott. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you make the long tradition of poetry come alive. Today's quote of the day relates to that long tradition of poetry. In his Nobel lecture, Derek Walcott writes this, Poetry, which is perfection's sweat, but which must seem as fresh as the raindrops on a statue's brow, combines the natural and the marmoreal. It subjugates both tenses simultaneously, the past and the present. If the past is the sculpture and the present the beads of dew or rain on the forehead of the past. There is the buried language and there is the individual vocabulary, and the process of poetry is one of excavation and of self-discovery. Tonally, the individual voice is a dialect. It shapes its own accent, its own vocabulary, and melody in defiance of an imperial concept of language the language of Ozymandias, libraries and dictionaries, law courts and critics and churches, universities, political dogma, the diction of institutions. Poetry is an island that breaks away from the main. The dialects of my archipelago seem as fresh to me as those raindrops on the statue's forehead. And for more about the dual languages of the past and the present, the tradition and the individual voice, let's go into that chat with me and Josh and Heather. Hi, Josh. Hey, Professor Labbers. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. And here's Heather. Hi, Heather. Hello. It sounds like both of your favorite walk-up poems was The Schooner Flight. Yes. Which is my favorite, too. It's so, so great. It's going to be slightly hard to talk about. This is what I I think our agenda should be. So to outline a very brief and totally flexible agenda, there are three overlapping questions that I would uh, like to attempt to answer. First one is how does Walcott? How do Walcott's poems achieve a universal audience when they are so specifically Caribbean? He writes so particularly about his local place, and yet his poems, I think, achieve a kind of universal. They are about the human condition. I want to ask what Derek Walcott's relationship to the tradition is. He's very explicitly modeling his poems on old poems, or rewriting old poems, or using very old form. So I want to ask why a poet in the 21st century would do that. 
what some risks involved in that might be. Third question is how, and you can tell that these three questions are all slightly, they all slightly overlap with each other. How does his use of language not keep readers out? I have never been to the Caribbean. So there are many allusions and references and words that I don't understand when I read his poems. And yet, despite, maybe not despite, maybe because, I don't know, I'd love to pick your guys' brains about this. Despite, despite all of this local vocabulary, I feel totally welcome inside his poems. Even though, like one of your classmates said, I, I find myself Googling a lot of things. So that's the kind of terrain, map of the terrain that I'd like to cover. Maybe the best place to begin, just a very simple question. What was it about the schooner flight that stood out to you so much? So for me, it was the rhythm of his language. Yeah. There were so many sections that, I don't know, I got caught up in the flow of what he was saying. And the words were just like rushing past me in almost an incomprehensible way. Like I almost didn't quite know what I was reading, but the language was so good that I couldn't stop. I love that answer. It has the force of the ocean. It has the force of the sea. It's like a wave that uh, overwhelms you in uh, maybe a kind of slightly, as you say, Heather, confusing way. There are many moments in this poem that I have to slow down a lot to comprehend. But just the force of the rhythm. Uh, I want to hear from Josh as well, of course, but let's just put some texture to what you say. Maybe a good moment to highlight this is at the very end of section one of this poem. So this is on page 129 in the book. Well, let's go down to page 128. He says, I swear to you all by my mother's milk, by the stars that shall fly from tonight's furnace, that I loved them, my children, my wife, my home. I loved them as poets love the poetry that kills them, as drowned sailors the sea. You ever look up from some lonely beach and see a far schooner? Well, when I write this poem, each phrase go be soaked in salt. I go draw and knot each line as tight as ropes in this rigging. In simple speech, my common language go be the wind. My pages the sails of the schooner flight. But let me tell you how this business begin. So we talked in class about how good he is at making sure that most of his poem is brick and not mortar. Mm -hmm. So many great concrete nouns just crammed right up against each other. It's like this wonderful staccato beat. Yeah, and one okay, so I, I want to kind of tie because I think Heather's comment and what we just read is just like a perfect example of we were talking about how do you write about like the Caribbean, but still make it about everybody, you know, make yeah. it universal. And one of the things that I noticed in this poem, I, I think most people would notice, is that this is a poem that uses a Caribbean like dialect. You know, this yeah. isn't the Queen's English. So um as you I go draw and knot every line as tight as ropes in this rigging in simple speech, my common language, go be the wind. Yeah. Now this is, he's taking like his dialect, his language, and he's putting it just right into the poem in a way that I, I think it just gives the poem so much texture and just like so much personality. It just makes me connect to the poem and to him just so much more. So I, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Instead of I am going to draw each knot and line as tight. Yeah. Um, I want to, you say it's not the queen's English. That's a great thing to say because There's this weird paradox where the problem with the three questions that I have nominated is that they're all kind of versions of each other. So I'm finding it very hard to not talk about all three of them at the same time. Even though this sounds totally of the time and place and of this person, Shabine, the speaker of this poem, I hear Shakespeare 
kind of in the background. You know, I hear Hamlet or Prospero or Caliban or Othello. This is what Heather maybe is alluding to when she talks about the musical force. The, the, the rhythms of the poem are so well constructed and I think grand. It's, it does, doesn't it have such a grand, I don't know what other use, word to use to describe it, a grand rhythm. So I hear this wonderful combination between his local dialect and the, the history of, of English poetry. Right. And I feel like part of the local dialect brings out this character because we know this character. It's um, I'm going to have to look at the name to be able to say it. Uh, his name is Shabine. Yeah, that's what he calls yeah. himself. Yeah. So this character, Shabine, who isn't Walcott, although could be, but it's this specific person telling his own specific story. And yet, because it's a human being telling a human story, it becomes universal. And we all relate to it because we always relate to a person when they're telling a story. It's just how our minds tick. And so like, and harking back to those ancient poets, like you were talking about, those ancient forms are like engraved in the bones of our brain. Yeah. Our brain doesn't have bones. But <laughs> no, but yeah, you're right. In our Engraved skull. in like our historical Neanderthal brain. Yes. Because we've always been telling stories and the oldest form of story, I guess other than cave art, is poetry. Yeah. Because poetry was a good way to tell epic tales and an easy thing for people to memorize. Wow, you've said a couple of really important things here. So the rhythms of this poem appeal to our bodies, not just our brains. They appeal to our bodies. So we hear, we recite this poem out loud, we read it out loud, we hear it being read, and, and we're being spoken to on this, as you say, kind of primal level, uh, just musically, this primal level. Can we spend a few minutes spelling, because you've both made an assertion here, and it's an assertion that we've made in class before. It's one I think is absolutely true, but it is a paradox. And it's this assertion that the reason that this achieves universal appeal is because it is so particularized. You've both said a version of this. It's the story of one human. It doesn't achieve universal status despite that. It achieves it because of that. That is the thing that makes it achieve a universal appeal. How is this, can, can we unpack this paradox? How, what is, what is that magic trick exactly? What is the magic trick in which the more specific you get, the more universal you get? How does that work? I don't want to go too macro on this question. I also don't want to go too micro, but I think it's human nature to, you know, we see our, our reflection in rocks and trees, right? We make faces oh, yeah. out of clothes on our chair. So I, I think the the challenge of poetry is that if we just put something as realistic as it can be into the world um, and, and maybe frame it in a new light, bring a new life to it, maybe it is just a pile of clothes on a chair. Maybe we write just a poem about that. Yeah. But if you can do that in a way that that does almost kind of breathe uh, some kind of life into it. I think it's human nature to, to relate to these things. And so, especially when you write on a person, you know, you make a character or, or perhaps himself, you know, Shabine, and you portray him in a way that's realistic and livable. I mean, there's just so much to relate to. There's just so much empathy yeah. to be had. And I think that's just one of the things this poem brings out is just, there is so much empathy I feel for this character that I've never met before and will never meet again. You know? Yeah, that's great. We're desperate to see ourselves in inanimate objects. So we want this. And when you have an animate object, a human being on the page, empathy. We don't, we're not going to empathize with a depiction of a human being that seems like simply a metaphor or simply a kind of two-dimensional allegory. 
the more particularized and three-dimensional he is, the more our empathy muscles are enacted. Our empathy muscles, glands, I don't know, bones. Yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> so sometimes in a poem, we're afraid to put in the particular details of our life. We're afraid to put place names in a poem because our readers won't know what we're talking about. We're afraid to be too specific about our own lives. I think we should get rid of this fear. We should dive headfirst into specificity. Yeah, no. So I was thinking about, as we were talking about this, there's this thing on the internet where somebody will say something very random but specific, and then somebody else will go mood. Because whatever random specific thing they've just said evokes a particular emotion. Yeah. And that emotion matches your emotion in the moment. And I think that's something that has evolved, you know, just even in everyday speaking and living is this idea that very specific situations can evoke specific emotions. And if we can like get the feel for that emotion from a situation or the emotion from a poem, we'll be like, oh, mood, that's how I feel. And then suddenly it's universal. So let's talk about mood. Let's do that right to this poem. And so let's do two things. I'm going to read the first, I don't know, eight lines, couple questions here. One is prompted by Heather's recent comment. He's giving us specific details, and these details come into the poem trailing clouds of mood. They evoke certain moods. What are the moods that these details evoke? How do they evoke them? That's the first question. The second question would be, how is it the case that these details are not too specific? How do we know when we're writing a poem what to explain and what not to explain? Do you know what I mean? Here we go. The schooner flight Section one, adios carinage. I can stop right there. How do we react to this detail? There's a detail, a place name. We know what the word adios means, so we assume that carinage must be a place. How do we react? What is your reaction as a reader? If the first thing he's saying is adios carinage, it evokes this feeling of a little bit of loss, a little bit of loneliness, and obviously a feeling of goodbye because adios. But you don't know what, but maybe you don't, I mean, maybe you do, Heather, but maybe you don't know where carinage is, what this refers to. How is that not an obstacle for you to enter the poem? Because I've also said goodbye to places. Not that I necessarily know it's a place, it could be a person, but I know the feeling of saying goodbye. Right. Yeah. And we think, oh, this is a real event that happened to a person just like me. So I have analogous things. Josh, any, I don't know, anything to add? I mean, the only thing I might add is just that adios carinage i mean just the way that you know the feeling that, that evokes is very different than farewell carinage you know the, the place is really not the the thing that we're focusing on we're focusing on how is he saying goodbye to okay. it yeah and you know adios you know there it is a, a feeling of loss but it's also a bit of a feeling of excitement you know adios you know very good. it's off to a new adventure there's something more to be had out there uh loss adventure but also a little bit of snark like Good rid, maybe slightly good riddance. Maybe that's a piece of the pie. You know, we learn quite quickly as we get into this poem that he's a little bit sick of his hometown. I'll keep reading for a few more lines. In idle August, while the sea soft and leaves of brown islands stick to the rim of this Caribbean, I blow out the light by the dreamless face of Maria Concepcion to ship as a seaman on the schooner flight. We have a month. We have a play, another place named Caribbean. We have a a woman's name, and we have the name of a boat. It could hardly get more specific. Am I boring you if I ask you the same question? 
how is this not too specific? How are you still feeling welcomed inside of this poem? I had to Google Maria Concepcion. I think I know who that is. I'm still not quite sure that I do. How are you feeling welcomed and at home inside of a poem that has this many inside details? And also let's t- tackle Heather's question about the moods. What, what are the moods that these details offer the poem? So while there is, like, this is incredibly specific imagery, it's also intermixed between imagery we don't and do know and don't know. Right. So we don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I never even looked up who Maria Concepcion is, you know, yeah. sorry, I got lazy there, but, but I do know what August is. I've, I've experienced August, you know, and I've experienced idle Augusts, uh, especially a lot of those. And yeah. so while they're like, there's, there's an intermixing and like, I, I know what it's like, you know, I was raised on an Island. So I, I know what it's like to see the sea soft and there's things that I can relate to. And there's things I can't relate to. And it just almost, again, I think it creates a texture of the poem that keeps me more interested than if he was just telling me all these things I already know or just re-explaining things I already know to me. I, mean, I, want, I want to hear from Heather too, but it's also very clear that this isn't a dream place or a, or, a, or a metaphor for a place. This is a real place. This is a real place, and I think that matters. Heather, what would you add? Yeah, and similarly to Josh, like I know the feeling of an idle August by the soft sea, this kind of laziness that it evokes, this idea of like, this place is tranquil and peaceful. And then you combine that with the adios that we just had. Mm. And, you know, you're blowing out a candle, well, a light, but my brain says it's a candle. Um, I think it must, yeah, some kind of lamp, some kind of uh, flame lamp, yeah. And it's pulls us back to the sense of leaving because you always turn out the light when you go mm-hmm. and you say you know and then he's going off to be a seaman yep. on a ship and so it pulls back into that feeling of excitement so it's gone back to all those different feelings that we got with adios it stays true to what it said it was going to be which i appreciate excellent excellent so how do we write poetry this class is called writing poetry we get as specific as possible. We don't fear mixing all these emotions. We've talked about the mixing of emotions. It's this uh, trepidation, loss, excitement. I don't know if disgust is an overstatement. All in like eight lines. Tenderness. You cannot know these details. Like Josh says, Like you, you can get lazy and not Google every single word and still feel like... I mean, it's like when you walk into a person's house that you've never... that you don't know... A stranger invites you into his house and you see photos on the wall of his or her family. Of course, you don't know the backstory of those people in the photos, but you attach, they add dimension to the person standing in the room with you. You know what I mean? So you don't have to know all these details. What they do is they add drapery to the poem. They add dimension to the speaker of the poem. The speak, they help flesh the speaker out. So it's not a, reading this poem well is not a matter of Googling every single illusion or every single word. It's simply a matter of letting those details convince you that this is a human with particular loves and hates and de- and, uh, and a particular life. I know we've already talked about metaphor here, but I would just love to... Let's, yep. Well, um, when he says, you know, I blow out the light by the dreamless face of Maria Concepcion, you know, just the word dreamless face. The one thing I love about his metaphors so often is that they do double work. That so he's saying dreamless face, and I'm picturing the dreamless face of this saint or, or whoever, you know. Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, just like by invoking the words dreamless, I'm thinking, okay, he's obviously turning out the light, 
Dreamless is on his mind. I mean, this is this man's Very tired. Good. You know, this man is like probably been working a long day on the ship. Um, so I, I just love to. I just love the efficiency of this poem. Uh, and look at I mean, so speaking, much, so little. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of doing so much with so little. Each phrase, when I write this poem, each phrase go be soaked in salt. So each phrase is going to be, the salt is what gives food its savor. So each phrase is going to be flavorful and each phrase is going to be soaked with the place that it's describing. And this is doing triple work because it's giving us the mind of the speaker. This is a speaker whose mind is constantly on the sea. So it's characterizing him it's um, telling us what to look forward to and how to enjoy the poem as a kind of thing to savor. Um, it's giving us this one, these wonderful alliterations. Yeah. I go draw and knot every line as tight as ropes in this rigging, a line of poetry, a line in a boat. He's very self-aware. He knows what he's good at as an artist. Walcott is, I'm talking about each line of his poetry is indeed drawn as tight as a rigging in a ship. There's no slack. So we're adding this to our list of how to imitate Derek Walcott. Allow no slack in your poems whatsoever. I want. I don't want to finish with this poem. What What other moments or sections of this poem do you just really love? There are a few more that I I really do. So you see, I've highlighted mine. Um, page one thirty four. This mm -hmm. like bottom section. Okay. Right in the middle. I adore this part. Okay. Do you want to read it and then uh, yeah, just enthuse about it? I will. I'm just going to start where I highlighted because I like it best. Sure. I remembered them ghost ships. I saw me corkscrewing to the seabed of sea worms, fathom past fathom. My jaw clenched like a fist and only one thing hold me trembling. How my family safe home. Then a strength like it sees me. And the strength said, I from backward people who still fear God, let him in his might heave Leviathan upward. By the winch of his will, the beast pouring lace from his sea-bottom bed. And that was the faith that had fade from a child in a Methodist chapel in Chisel Street, Castries, when the whale bell sang service. And in hard pews, ribbed like whale, proud with despair, we sang how our race survived the sea's maw, our history, our peril. And now I was ready for whatever death will. Wow. Yeah. What do you love most about that? This felt like the most powerful moment of this poem to me. It, the wording, like it flows from one thing to another in just these alliterations and repetitions. Yeah. And then it's this epiphany that he has that he comes from people with a noble history and his noble history can give him strength. And if he faces up to that, he's ready to face the storm in his sea. And he harks back to all these different images he's been building throughout the poem. Yeah. And then through this scene in particular, like we've got whales and then whales in the pews and everything just coalesces into this one. I am ready for whatever I was ready for whatever death will. And it just, ah, I couldn't have described it better. Uh, so what, but what are we learning about how to read poetry? Aim high. I mean, wouldn't we all love to write a poem that has this kind of climactic power this kind of religious power this kind of emotional power what i'm learning from this is i hear this poem saying to me go and do thou likewise i mean that's what i'm that's it, it's very inspiring i think what i know this is a great section heather picked uh fantastically i i think we were just talking about him stretching a line or having no slack in a line yeah. but it's also i think important to note that this is a 
what is this a nine nine line sentence like this is not a like a short sentence by any means yeah and so i think also in terms of like when we talk about writing like walcott stretching a line you know i i think so much of what we can do is stretch a line with metaphors farther and farther and farther and see how you know how much weight that rope can hold you know how much right. weight that, you know that line can hold and I think it is the the length of this line, the just him consistently throwing in more and more and more imagery into this one sentence that builds this sentence up and makes it so one of the things that makes it so powerful. It's like um, I'm trying to think of the best metaphor here. Uh, neither of these are going to be totally great, but uh, like a singer, what happens when a singer holds a note for a long time in a song that inherently adds emotional force to that moment of the song? Right. It, it increases the tension. It increases the suspense. You know, it increases the strength, the force, the emotional force. The same thing could be happening if you just simply write long sentences. Oh, my goodness. It's still going. It's still it's wait. The sentence is still going. It's still going. So up and up and up. The tension is going. But, you know, the, the same thing in, in athletics as well. It's like just to hold a certain position for slightly longer than normal is powerful. So don't be afraid of run on sentences. There, I mean, there's a difference between a run on sentence and a good long sentence. But don't be afraid to stretch those sentences out for the purposes of this kind of climactic power. Heather? It's like a springboard diver. So when you dive, you jump, and this jump climbs and climbs and climbs and climbs until you hit the peak of your jump. Oh, yeah, that's good. when you're supposed to execute your dive. And so like right at that peak is when you do your thing and you yeah. do your flips and whatnot. Because that's the ideal moment. And so it's like he's climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed. Then right at that exact right peak, you have to hit it exactly to get it perfect. He executes it. And it's like whoosh down from there. And it's beautiful, gorgeous. I want to, in in the spirit of Walcott, extend your metaphor, Heather, by saying that how does such a diver learn his or her art? Hours and hours and hours and hours of trial and error. Years of trial and error. So what we're seeing Derek Walcott do here isn't something that will be easy for us to achieve. It's possible for us to achieve. I make it, you've probably heard me, if you, if you make it to the very last few seconds of these podcast recordings, I make it a point explicitly to say that you have what it takes to become a great poet, because I think this is true. If you put in the work, if you put in the time and the practice and take an apprenticeship seriously, but it's not something that we, this is why I, I refer to our drafts in this class as drafts. You know, they're just drafts. Let's have a long view of this and let's take, let's respect the accomplishment and, and how much time that would take, you know? And I'd also add that one of the things that makes him, that he, the reason that he can do this so well, I know I can write long sentences too, but they might not be near as good as Walcott's, right? Yeah. One of the things that I think he does specifically that makes this so good is it, it these long sentences are combined with the rhythm and the musicality of his language that sometimes I think with a, this, it is almost a run on sentence. It just keeps going and going, but it's so beautiful that it carries you through it. You don't feel like you're trudging through this line. Like the musicality alone just carries you through the sonic quality carries you through. Excellent. He gives you moments to pause, you know, a child in the Methodist chapel in Chazelle Street, comma, Castries, comma, when the whale bell sang service and in hard pews ribbed like the whale, proud with despair. So that all of his interruptions, all of the clauses, all of the dependent clauses in this sentence help you pace it out as you read it. There's this wonderful mix of control and daring. Yeah. 
What I'm going to do now is I want to read my favorite section of this, which is section 11, After the Storm. It's kind of a long bit. I would like to pivot after I read it into this other question about his relationship with the tradition. How and why is he making new poetry out of the old? So that's the question I want to hear your guys' thoughts on after I read this. This section that I'm about to read isn't necessarily exhibit A, so you don't have to necessarily answer it based on what I'm about to read. But like I say, I do consider this poem, The Schooner Flight, to be a kind of extended Shakespearean soliloquy. So yeah, that's the question. How does he relate to the tradition? And also while I read it, let's just have people listening focus on what we've already highlighted, his metaphors, his compact language, his specificity, and the way in which he can climactically, or like this diver, extend, hold, pause, pause again, keep pausing, you know, the kind of the ebb and flow of his language, how a long sentence will come after a short, etc. Here we go. After the storm. There's a fresh light that follows a storm while the whole sea still havoc. In its bright wake, I saw the veiled face of Maria Concepcion marrying the ocean, then drifting away in the widening lace of her bridal train with white gulls her bridesmaids till she was gone. I wanted nothing after that day. Across my own face, like the face of the sun, a light rain was falling, with the sea calm. Fall gently, rain, on the sea's upturned face like a girl showering. Make these islands fresh as Shabine once knew them. Let every trace, every hot road, smell like clothes she just press and sprinkle with drizzle. I finish dream. Whatever the rain wash and the sun iron, the white clouds, the sea and sky with one seam is close enough for my nakedness. Though my flight never pass the incoming tide of this island sea beyond the loud reefs of the final Bahamas, I am satisfied if my hand gave voice to one people's grief. Open the map. More islands there, man, than peas on a tin plate, all different size, 1,000 in the Bahamas alone. From mountains to low scrub with coral keys and from this bowsprit, I bless every town, the blue smell of smoke in hills behind them, and the one small road winding down them like twine to the roofs below. I have only one theme, the bowsprit, the arrow, the longing, the lunging heart, the flight to a target whose aim will never know, vain search for one island that heals with its harbor and the guiltless horizon, or the almond's shadow doesn't injure the sand. There are so many islands, as many islands as the stars at night on that branched tree from which meteors are shaken like falling fruit around the schooner flight. But things must fall, and so it always was, on one hand Venus, on the other Mars, fall and are one, just as this earth is one island in archipelagos of stars. My first friend was the sea. Now is my last. I stop talking now. I work, then I read, cotching under a lantern hooked to the mast. I try to forget what happiness was, and when that don't work, I study the stars. Sometimes is just me and the soft scissored foam as the deck turn white and the moon open a cloud like a door and the light over me is a road in white moonlight taking me home. Shabine sang to you from the depths of the sea. <laughs> I don't. I, don't, I really don't know if poetry could get better than that. Maybe let's pause on the tradition question and just, do you have favorite moments in this? Why is this chunk that I just read such great poetry? Okay, so I, I love the, this is something he does. In fact, I actually might even, 
I, I might read a line from another poem. I, we don't have to turn there. Of course. But, no, let's do it. Um, he does this really well throughout a few of his poems. Um, but I, I love what he, he does this where he'll say, them like twine to the roost below. I have only one theme. And then he lists four things after that. <laughs> you know, And I just think like, oh, that's wonderful. Like what a small little surprise. But that's just so amazing. It's so well done and put in there. And I, I, I want to, because there's another part where he does this. He does this in The Prodigal. And yep. I highlighted this because I thought this was good. Um, he, he goes on, he's musing about these kind of big things of, of life and death and his life and all these things in the prodigal reflecting back. And he's at the very end, uh, very close to the end, he says, all of the questions tangle in one question. Why does the dove moan or the horse shake its mane or the lizard wait on the white wall then is gone? So like he's just been musing about these massive things. And like, so he says this line, all of the questions tangle in one question. And man, you're just expecting something big, you know, it is going to really hit you. And then he says, you know, why does the horse shake its mane? You know, it just like, he just brings it right back down to just this like, so like super just tangible, like just kind of crazy question. And it's just, oh my goodness, it just strikes you even more than if he had asked the most amazing, you know, existential question ever. You know, it's, he does this so well throughout his poetry. That is so good. I could love that more. Oh my gosh. All questions are one question. Why does the horse shake its mane? Wow. You know, okay. So several, I want to hear from Heather, but several things in your comment, Josh, like um, he has this book called The Bounty. One of his books is called The Bounty. And this is certainly one trait of his poetry that is characteristic. It's just so bounteous. You know, he, he, he says like, okay, I have a box this big to fill. Let me try to cram twice as much into that box. This is your comment about, I, I have only one theme and then here come four of them, you know? So it's like, just pile it all in, but also ground any large concern, any thematic, any conceptual work that you're doing in specific concrete images. You know, all questions are the one question, why does the dove moan? This is an existential question, but it is phrased in a way that appeals to the senses, which is why it is so powerful. So Heather, if I asked you, I don't know which question you want to answer. There's about eight on the table here. You can pick anyone. If I asked you, if I asked you why the section that I read is so good, you can answer that. You can take us to this bit about tradition, his relationship to Shakespeare, Homer. Yeah. Where would you like to go? So I did have one thought on this one. In that last little section, he says, as many islands as the stars at night, your brain goes, oh, the stars at night, what a cliche. And then he <laughs> follows it up with, on that branch tree from which meteors are shaken. And I'm like, what the heck? And that's how you use a cliche properly in a way that is so masterful because he takes this cliche and he even uses it opposite in the first place because typically, you know, you can't be as countless as the stars yeah. at night, but these islands are. And more than that, they're part of this meteor that extends into this archipelago of stars and like, yeah. what the heck? So we see this, we see this enormous, this is like the Norse, what is that tree in Norse mythology? Yggdrasil or something. It's the tree uh -huh. that, and we see this tree extending through all of the universe. That is, you're absolutely right, Heather, how to get, because sometimes you do want to make comparisons that people have heard before. We talked about this a little bit in class. Sometimes you do want to say that tears are like rain or that the islands are as numerous as stars. How do you earn moments like this? Well, here's one way to say they're not just like stars, but they're like the, like the most amazing description of stars you've ever heard. Here's a follow-up question because you've, you've brought my attention to this moment, Heather. 
Is he or is he not mixing his metaphors here? As many islands as the stars at night on that branched tree from which meteors are shaken like falling fruit. This is a triple metaphor. How, how is he getting, I don't I mean, we don't have to defend everything that these poets do. Like I said in class, great poets make mistakes all the time and not everything they write is as good as everything else that they write. But he does this a lot. He, he metaphors inside of a metaphor. Do we want to talk about how he earns this or what effect it has on us? I think this one in particular works because his last metaphor pulls us back to the schooner flight. Okay. So if it wasn't a metaphor connected to the schooner flight, I don't think it would work so well. But he's like, here's this thing that I've described and here's how it's like the schooner flight and my personal journey. And so he pulls it back to the overarching metaphor of the poem or the overarching topic of the poem. And it flows well. It's not like an abrupt change because we're talking about things falling from trees. Well, fruit falls from trees too. Right. If that makes any sense. So so he takes us back to the theme of the poem, but also his own presence. So he's doing like another kind of one of these flips, right? As many islands as stars that fall like fruit around the ship that I am. So he, 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 instead of like getting lost in this series of metaphors, they come full circle. So that could be one explanation. Ideas, Josh? Or, or we could go somewhere else? No, I, I love, I think Heather, I mean, did that fantastic. I even wrote a note uh, right next to these lines when I underlined them. And this it just says three metaphors in one sentence, you know? Yes. Um, which I love what Heather said. I mean, Heather kind of, I, I, how I took it was, they're almost a chain of metaphors, you know, binding these two ideas. But also one thing I'd like to bring out in this sentence that I think he does consistently is he uses, he'll make these sentences where he does use a lot of metaphors takes them on this crazy journey, this, this sentence, and then he'll throw in like almost a dangling participle or like a pronoun that you, you don't know which metaphor that ties back to, or does it tie back to the beginning? Cause when he says around the schooner flight, that prepositional phrase, yeah. is he talking about the stars falling around the schooner? Like, is it just right. a meteor shower or is he talking about the islands that are around the schooner? It works on both levels. And yeah, uh, so I think he he's vague at times, that which is one of the things that can make his poetry so hard, but he makes it so it pays off so much because if you really take the time to say, what does this connect to? You can get five out of, five ideas out of one <laughs> word, you know, rather than just one. And let's keep going. But things must fall. And so so it's like one word is leading to the next word, like falling fruit around the schooner flight, but things must fall. And so it always was on one hand, Venus on the other Mars semicolon fall and are one. So he's regrafting that clause to the previous part of the sentence. He interrupts the sentence to give us this message about Venus and Mars. And he's like, okay, let's go back to that verb. So I'll, re- I'll regraft that verb onto that other clause fall and are one, just as the earth is one. His, his sentences are extremely what they're wonderfully complex often, but then, but then it's like, but then look at how that complexity is so wonderfully counterbalanced with now is my last. I stop talking now. I work and then I read, right? So make sure that once you, if you do these flips, these uh, crazy diver flips, or if you hold these notes out like an opera singer for a long time, um, you can't, not every sentence of your poem should do that. You know, you need alternate spices. So give a reprieve, you know, with a wonderfully plain sentence. We should talk about the tradition and pivot into Omeros, but 
I'm sad to say goodbye to the schooner flight. Um, especially that moment where he has that fight over his book of poems with the, the chef. It's like the best thing. I can't read it. It has all these swear words in it, but it's my favorite, favorite part where they take his notebooks of poems and they're like playing keep away with this notebook of poems. And they're even reading bits of it and mocking him and the voice, oh, my children, my wife. So this is them mocking what they're reading in his poetry journal. It gives us a glimpse into what he's reading. What? Sorry, it gives us a glimpse into what he's writing about, like these sad poems. Oh, my children, my wife. Yeah, some cases for fists, some cases for tholing pin, some cases for knife. This one was for knife. And he, st- <laughs> and he stabs him and no one's going to mess with my poetry again. I, I, just, I just love this uh, wonderful passion that he has for an art form that I am passionate about too, but an art form that is also so easy to mock and make fun of. Tradition. So why is he, if we go into Omeros, and I think a couple of you wanted to read a section of this, we're not going to have time to talk about one of my favorite poems, The Season of Phantasmal Peace. One of you, which one of you nominated elsewhere as an exceptionally beautiful poem? Heather, it's so beautiful. I love that poem too. So to everybody listening, Reread, please. The Season of Phantasmal Peace. Reread elsewhere. It's a beautiful, gorgeous poem. We won't have time to go through the Arkansas Testament. It's, a, it's Talk about an ambitious poem. That's such an ambitious poem. You wanted to talk about that one, Josh. Uh, in class, let's try to gather some of these up in our last class about Walcott. If I could, can we... Please. Uh, there's one section of the Ark. Can we trip over the Arkansas Testament on our way to Omeros? Just one... Love it. Let's do it. Because I think this ties exactly into the, the conversation. Okay. It's on page 202. I guess this would be what section would this be? Section 10. Um, oh, man, so good. I, and I'll just read the these kind of middle lines of just these, because I think this ties directly into tradition. So he's just talking about, you know, this little town in Arkansas. I'll, I'll read from the top of the page. I waited for a while by the grass of a Uranus wall to let the revolving red eye on top of a cruising police car pass. In an all-night garage, I saw the gums of a toothless Sybil in garage tires, and she said, stay black and invisible to the sirens of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. The snakes coiled on the pumps, hissed with their metal mouths. Your shadow still hurts the South, like Lee's slowly reversing sword. Um, Wow. Good, but... Um, so well, before we go and talk about um, tradition on like a macrocosmic scale, because obviously he's, he's taking on the form of an epic in Omeros, just taking like these elements of tradition, the element of a sibyl, you know, of right. sirens, of when I heard snake coils, snakes coiled, um, well, I'm seeing him pulling out. He's pulling references to the Aeneid, really, largely. Oh, good. A massive thing there. So he's telling the story of this small town. Um, in the context of big stories, of epics, you know? And so I think, you know, one of the challenges of poetry is like, how do we take small things and make them big? How do we take big things and make them small? What if we told, you know, tell small stories in big ways, tell small stories like an epic, you know, maybe, um, man, you know, write, write a poem about your cat, but invoke the muses first. Yes, you know, yes. what, like what wonderful irony, you know, just so... I think to to use this imagery in a place where it, you wouldn't normally think of it, he does it so well. Okay, we, we have to talk about this. Why? There's several questions now coming into my mind. Several of them you already know. Why would a writer do this? Why does a writer want to describe a specific Arkansas or the Caribbean as echoes of ancient Greek poems? 
why? That's the first question, why? The second question is how? So let's tackle the first. Why is this good? A thought I had, Walcott's poetry is so focused on history and heritage, specifically his history and heritage, but there's a lot of deep, rich history and heritage in what he writes about. Mm -hmm. And what better history and heritage for a poet than Homer and Shakespeare? These forms are our heritage as poets. And so to someone like him who's so focused on that, writing in ways that invoke those ancient heritages of poetry, especially since poetry is so dear and deep to his soul. And similarly, like these heritages are roots as poets. It's where poetry started. And so coming back to that gives our poetry just that depth of grandeur. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to do it well first, but it's the depth of grandeur and heritage that makes the heritage in his poem all that more grandiose about being his own personal heritage. You say roots. It's the roots. Um, This is a a very well-chosen metaphor, Heather, because he wants to graft. He is like that fruit, you know, that we were just talking about in the schooner flight. He wants his, his own poetic fruit to be healthy and he wants it to thrive. He, so he's grafting his branch onto this pre-existent tree. How foolish would it be in a moment of hubris and pride to say to that tree, I don't need you. I don't need your roots. You cut yourself off from those roots. You, your little branch will wither. So one absolutely, maybe these, this isn't the only answer to the question why. It would be near the top of my list, certainly. Why would you model your poem on the poets of the past or echo the poets of the past because you need them to nourish you do we have i don't know if i have any other why answers that come to mind immediately josh do you that we should talk about the hows but do we want to add anything to the whys i guess maybe i'll transition into the hows with a why um this is both a why and a how I, i think how he does it so well and perhaps why he does it i think one of the beauties of his poetry poetry in general is that poetry can bring together like disparate things and synthesize them into something that feels seamless, you know? So he's taking epic tradition. He's taking American history. He talks about Lee, the South and Lee. Um, On the previous page, he has, he says just right before this, on the far side of the highway, a breeze turned the leaves of an Aspen to the first epistle of Paul's to the Corinthians, which is a great metaphor. What a better way to say, like, rather than, oh, the leaves turned like a pages of a book, you know, right. really uh, so good. But so in just this very, like in these short lines, he's taken the Bible, the Southern yeah. history, the small little town um, in the early morning and uh, Virgil, and he's tied them together. And yeah. like, what a great way to breathe new life into something is to show the epicness of it, uh, the biblical proportions. All lives are epic, all of them. Shabine is, you know, tech, some anonymous sailor who would have gone, who would have lived in totally unknown life. Walcott said, I mean, he's probably fictional, but, you know, he's based on real people, of course. Walcott said, no, you deserve a long Shakespearean style poem. Omeros is the story of these two fishermen, Achille, which is this French version of Achilles, and Hector fighting over this woman, Helen. So he's using these Homeric names. He's 
having a lot of fun with the plot. This is not really at all the plot of the Iliad, but he's clearly evoking the, the Iliad as this long book length poem. Let's spend a few minutes reading our favorite bits of it. I have a favorite bit. I think it was Heather, right? Also who has a favorite mm-hmm. bit. So we might have to limit ourselves to one small favorite bit each of Omeros, but let's read a favorite bit and then add more answers to the how. Josh has helped us get the how ball rolling by saying specific and compressed um, and broad sweeping, broadly sweeping allusions, you know, allude to this, 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 and this in four lines, collapse history, collapse it. It's timeless, you know? So what little chunk of Omeros Heather would you like to read? So I love chapter three, section one, and we're going to skip the first part because a, I can't read French and B, um, Pardon his French. Yes, yes, okay. (laughs) But so I think I'll start with, and now the villagers emerged from the green shade of the almonds and wax-leaved machineels for the face-off that Hector wanted. A shield walked off and waited at the warm, shallow's edge. Hector strode towards him. The villagers followed as the surf abated its sound, its fear cowering at the beach's rim. Then far out at sea in a sparkling shower, Arrows of rain arched from the emerald breakwater of the reef, the shafts traveling with clear power in the sun. And behind them, ranged for the slaughter, stood villagers shouting with a sound like the shoal and hosting arms to the light. Hector ran, splashing in shallows mixed with the drizzle. Towards a shield, his cutlass lifted the surf in anger, gnashing its tail like a foaming dogfight. Men can kill their own brothers in rage. For the madman who tore a shield's undershirt from one shoulder also tore at his heart. The rage that he felt against Hector was shame. To go crazy for an old tin bailing crusted with rust? The duel of these fishermen was over a shadow, and its name was Helen. Yeah, so praise this. What's praiseworthy about this? Well, he's been harking to the ancients before this, but he was mostly setting up the setting. This is really that first fight of the epics in this poem. And it's this epic fight, this epic fight scene that's two guys, I don't know, fishing against each other in the ocean. Yeah. And they're ripping each other apart. And for what? You know, <laughs> the shame of what are we even fighting for? And that yeah. like almost harkens back to this because the Iliad is the war of Troy. And it was this huge war and all of this stuff. And yeah. for what? You're right. So there's this wonderful irony, you know, there's this wonderful grandiosity, as you said earlier, Heather, but there's this also like deeply critical irony. What what for? Earlier in the story, we don't really get the full plot because of the excerpt, the excerpted nature of these portions, but I can't remember who steals this from who, but they steal this old rusted tin that is this fishing tool, a bait tin or something. I can't remember. Uh, and this starts this grudge that eventually leads to the violence, right? So yeah, over what? Over the, and, and I love what he says, men can kill their own brothers in rage. So one answer to the how question is, don't be afraid of describing human nature. You know, don't be afraid of d- describing human nature. That is how other people will see themselves in your poem. One thing I do like about Heather's section here is that the story does not take place like an act, like the actual ba- battle of Achilles and Hector at all, right? I mean, uh, like none it's of that. It's just a brawl, yeah. Right, it's just a brawl. It, it really has nothing to do with it. And I was just looking for the part... I, I didn't highlight it. I, it looks like, I guess, um, of Achilles. It's in the very beginning where he's chopping down a tree and he like almost starts to cry over this tree. If I remember right, I hope I, I hope I'm not. Well, it could be right at the very beginning. This is how one sunrise we cut down them canoes. 
Let me see. Let me, yeah, let me take a second here and then. Okay, while you're looking, can I read a few lines of my favorite bit? Yeah. This is on page 239. We get this narrator. I sang of quiet Ashil Afolabe's son, who never ascended in an elevator, who had no passport since the horizon needs none, never begged nor borrowed, was nobody's waiter, whose end when it comes will be a death by water, which is not for this book, which will remain unknown and unread by him. I sang the only slaughter that brought him delight, and that from necessity of fish, sang the channels of his back in the sun. I sang our wide country, the Caribbean Sea, who hated shoes, whose souls were as cracked as a stone, who was gentle with ropes, who had one suit alone, whom no man dared insult. So first of all, the rhythmic power of this section, I sang of this, of that, of that, of that. It's another wonderful use of anaphora, building this crescendo. Again, just to be a broken record, I, I sang of quiet Ashil who never ascended in an elevator. Like, Talk about great characterization. You know, this was a person who who lived a life so far away from elevators, he never entered one. Wow, that's just so, such economical characterization. And it's so specific and it gets all of my empathy glands pumping. You know what I mean? I just feel so connected to him as a human being, so connected to him, but also to this whole place. You know, I sang our wide country who hated shoes. You know, this is a place where people don't like to wear shoes. And so they have cracked soles. You know, I think he's telescoping between the, the minute and the macro. Um, yeah, he's just doing so much, so much well. Josh. Yeah, okay, so you're, you were right. So the, the passage I love is on, uh, on the first page here. I, I think what a great way to start the poem too. And I'll read how many stanzas? One, two, three, four, the fifth stanza down. Okay. Um, so they're just about to cut down this tree, Achilles and Achille. And he says, I lift up the axe and pray for strength in my hands to wound the first cedar. Dew was filling my eyes, but I fire one more white rum, then we advance. Yeah. Um, so just in that stanza, wonderfully, we have a little bit, uh, we, we have battle imagery, which is what we expect, right? This is a poem shaped after an epic of one of the most epic battles ever. Mm-hmm. But uh, right, Achilles in the actual Iliad is this really tough guy. Uh, his friend dies, and it takes him like three, four more books before he can finally cry about it. But like, so Walcott just juxtaposes that character of Achilles that we have in our mind with this guy that cries over cutting down a tree. Right, dew was filling my eyes. Right, and I think it, I think that challenges that 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 shift in that illusion challenges us as readers to say. Okay, so what really is toughness then? Or like, what really is manhood? Um, this is how the Greeks thought of manhood. How does Walcott think of manhood and toughness? Because uh, he's named this character after the, the toughest person ever, right? So. so, yes, this will be the concluding statement. Um, if you want to modernize old things, modernize them. This is Pound's make it new. Keep the it. Don't say, to heck with you, Homer. I don't need you. No, you ha- you need it, but you need to add your version of it. So, it's it, what it means to be a man now is slightly different than what it meant, or maybe vastly different. So keep the, the same themes, the same characters, but describe the ways in which your culture, your time, your country, your nation, your people, you as an individual come at these same issues and problems and themes. This has been so great. I'm sure the class will love it and uh, learn a lot. Thank you both for coming so, so well prepared, really. Sounds great. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.
You heard in that discussion that Walcott is obsessed with the poetry of the past, Shakespeare and Homer, and others. For this writing prompt, I invite you to think of your hometown and a few people in that town. For Walcott, it was fishermen to whom he gave the names of Achille and Hector. For me, when I think of rural Alberta, Canada, where I'm from, I think of maybe a man who works on an oil rig, or a woman who works in a diner, or a boy who gets up early and goes to hockey practice. But those are my own. I want you to think of your own hometown and the characters that fill this town. And I want you to start to think of ways in which you can make something epic out of them. There is an epic poem waiting to be told about them. It doesn't have to be epic in length. It can be a one-page short lyric poem, but it can be epic in intent and in scope and in its celebration of these people. If you need to, give them the names of characters from Homer or have them speak in a language that is authentic to them and who they are, but that is also tinged with a Shakespearean greatness, because they are great and they deserve such language. That's it for now. The next recording will be about the poems of Sylvia Plath, which I'm excited for. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, And don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great poet.